Hello everybody and welcome to my presentation. By now you already know who I am. For those of you just tuning in, my name is James Cordiner. I am not only the uh, your guide, your navigator, your host for the conference, but I'm also going to be giving this presentation today as well. On the side, my you can find me more often at A Hitchhiker's Guide to Truth. That's the name of my regular show. And you can also find me at Free Your Mind New England, uh, uh, freeyourmindne.com. That's my website where you can keep up with my, uh, with my ongoings. So that's pretty much all I have to say for an intro to myself uh, for my presentation here. So we're going to today be talking about ADHD. I've titled my presentation ADHD a modern attack on free thinkers and so before we really begin this presentation is uh, dedicated for my children uh, may there one day be shade under which you will sit I love you and I do this for you so a few caveats before we really begin. I would uh, encourage everybody to please look into this information for yourselves. Do not just believe me. It is that type of mentality that has uh, led us into this kind of chaos. Placing blind belief into somebody else is a logical fallacy. And I would encourage you I would I would strongly encourage you to please look in for the look into this for yourself and discern for yourself uh, how these facts uh, weigh in. This is merely an aggregation of information that I'm passing on to you. These are merely correspondences that I have seen and drawn and decided to bring forward to you people today. Uh, I would also like to let uh, let everybody know and. Uh, encourage everybody to consider that there are indeed children that could benefit from medicine. Again, and I'd also like to encourage those everyone out there to question for yourself whether or not that medication should be unnatural. We're going to be talking about that during this presentation. Um, I'd also let everybody, like everyone, to be made well aware of that I myself have indeed experienced a lot of what I'm about to get into. And maybe so have you, and you don't know it yet. And hopefully I can help you uh, maybe realize that not everything was so normal. But yep, I have experienced a lot of these things for myself. And um, so this is why I, I choose to speak about this. And lastly, if my presentation... Uh, begins to offend you, I would like for you to keep listening. I would like for you to not let your emotions uh, rule over your entire state of mind because, again, it's the this type of mentality that uh, has led us into, uh, that has played a role in leading us into this type of chaos. If this presentation does offend you, Maybe ask yourself uh, if it's because 
ultimately I am correct. So uh, it's a bold claim to make, but I'm willing to make it. I have not only lived this, but I have researched it as well. So um, that does it for my caveats, and we're going to move right on to a word, a word that has largely been lost. That word is autonomy. What is that? What is autonomy? Well, we have the definition here. Autonomy, the right or condition of self-government, freedom from external control or influence, independence, autonomy, and Kantian moral philosophy is the capacity of an agent to act in accordance with objective morality rather than under the influence of desires. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I have misspelled the word etymology, um, but that's okay. We're going to push forward. To, so early uh, etymology of the word autonomy, well, it first uh, showed up early 17th century from Greek autonomia, autonomos, meaning having its own laws. Autos means self plus nomos means laws. Okay. And the uh, yellow box there says you and you alone own your life and your body. No one else is entitled to your life, your body and productivity that stems from it. This is something that I really want to make sure people hear and really, really, really like drive it home. Okay. All right, Optimus Prime, one of the most badass cartoon characters from my childhood that I I, I liked uh, watching, is said that freedom is the right of all sentient beings, and he could not be more correct. Thank you, uh, the writers of <laughs> Optimus Prime's character, for putting that into a lot of children's uh, a lot of children's memories. Because television's not always the worst thing in the world. You just have to be careful of what you're putting on that screen. You have to be aware of it. Anyways, that's not what my presentation's about. <laughs> that's other guys. <laughs> um, let's ask some questions, right? How else do we discover truth? So I'd like everyone to ask, uh, I would like everyone to ask, how does one become a free thinker? Also... How does one educate themselves? And what have they done with all the free thinkers? Hmm. Who's they? Well, we abdicate a lot of responsibility onto entities that don't necessarily have to care about us, do we? So that's the big they. All right. Let's take a look uh, at this graphic here. It's quite popular. We have a right triangle with the trivium, the quadrivium, and the five senses, uh, the five senses being the hypotenuse. And forgive me if I'm wrong or have this opposite of each other, but the trivium being the x-axis and the quadrivium being the y-axis. Anywho, 
This is how we can educate ourselves by using the trivium, the quadrivium, and the five senses. But it doesn't just stop at the five senses. No, it goes a little further than that, and we will be talking about that as well. But I'd like to draw your attention to the trivium method of truth discovery. Um, the word trivium simply means three ways, three paths. The, the trivium method is made up of three parts and in order the first part is knowledge this is also known as the grammar stage this is where we gather available information the who where and when number two the second part is understanding also known as the logic stage this is where we take the knowledge that we have gathered and we form the fact form how the facts fit together we discover the why and the what. Number three is wisdom, also known as the rhetoric stage. This is where we show the proper use of the knowledge and understanding. This is where we demonstrate the how. A lot of people like to refer to it as input, which would be knowledge. Number two would be processing. And number three would be output. The Trivium method of truth discovery assists in one's ability to learn how to think, while most education today will only tell one what to think. Excuse me. This method has largely been absent from our children's education. This leaves them in a state of confusion doomed to live a life devoid of critical thinking skills. The earlier this method is introduced, the better. Ask yourself, really ask yourself, do you think that this has been an accident? Well, do you? Let's look into that. I want to introduce you to Johann Fichte. Shortly following an embarrassing defeat at the hands of Napoleon Bonaparte, Prussia, which is modern-day Germany, knew they were in trouble. Their soldiers were too busy thinking for themselves to stay on the battlefield. Something had to be done. This is where Johann Fichte comes in, a German nationalist. Ask yourself, does that sound familiar? <laughs> Fichte wrote the addresses to the German nation in 1807, in which he urged that the nation form a new style of educating the population, one that would prevent further embarrassment of this nature. Further down the road of history, this reformation would become known as the Prussian education model. Let's get to know Johann Fichte a little bit better, shall we? Johann Fichte said, Education should aim at destroying free will so that, after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable for the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. <sighs> Control freaks. Another quote from Johann Fichte give us a little insight into what type of person 
if you can even refer to him as a person, he was. The schools must fashion the person and fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. Thank you, Johan. Take a little bit of a deeper look into the Prussian education model and how it's set up. <clears throat> the familiar three-tier system of education emerged in the Napoleonic era. One private tier, one private tier, and two government ones. At the top, one half of 1%, that's 0.5% of the students attended Akademie Schulen, where, as future policymakers, they learned to think strategically, contextually, in holes. They learned complex processes and useful knowledge. They studied history, wrote copiously, argued often, read deeply, and mastered tasks of command. The next level, real schooling, was intended mostly as a manufactory for the professional proletariat of engineers, architects, doctors, lawyers, career civil servants, and such other assistance as policy thinkers at times would require. From 5 to 7.5% of all students attended these real schools, learning in a superficial fashion how to think in context, but mostly learning how to manage materials, men, and situations, to be problem solvers. This group would also staff the various poli uh, pol policing functions of the state, bringing order to the domain. And finally, at the bottom of the pile, a group between 92 and 94% of the population attended Wolkschulen, or People's School, where they learned obedience, cooperation, and correct attitudes, along with the rudiments of literacy and official state myths of history. So all in all, this is over 200 years ago that this was set up. But we can see the similarity uh, between this and what we have today. Yes, this was brought to America. Let's take a closer look into how that happened. So coming to America, the Prussian education model, in 1819, John Grissom's book, a year in Europe highly praised the Prussian schools. Grissom was read and admired by none other than Thomas Jefferson and other leading Americans whose intellectual patronage drew admirers into the net. A little later on, in 1836, Calvin Stowe investigated public education in England and Europe, then subsequently published his Report on Elementary Instructions in Europe in which he urged Ohio to follow the Prussian example of state-supported education and teacher training. The Ohio legislature ordered 8,500 copies of his report. That's one for every school district in the state at the time. Stowe's report to the Ohio legislature attesting to Prussian superiority was widely distributed across the country. The Ohio group mailed out 10,000 copies in legislatures uh, uh, in the legislatures of Massachusetts, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Virginia, each reprinting and distributing copies of the document for themselves. Okay. In 1843, Horace Mann's seventh report to the Boston School Committee 
ranked Prussia as the first of all nations in education. He ranked England last. You know, Horace Mann was a lot in, more influential than that, but if I were to start getting into more of what he was capable of, we'd be here talking about just this all day. Compulsory, yet free. Hmm. A little cognitive dissonance, a little hypocrisy there. Following the introduction of the Prussian education model, many educationists in the United States advocated for the implementation of a similar structure. In 1848, following the influence of Horace Mann, Josiah Quincy, mayor of Boston and president of Harvard, declared that every child should be educated to obey authority. That would be state authority, to be exact. Because, you know, as parents, we kind of do... Uh, we do take liberties to kind of be an authority figure over our child for the sake of their safety. Um, we'll get more into that in a little while. But by 1853, William C. Larrabee, the superintendent of public instruction uh, of Indiana, he's also a Connecticut native, declared that school policy was to mold all people into one people with one common interest. <clears throat> In 1856, Jacob Abbott, a prominent and influential children's book author, had publicly declared that it was the duty of the teacher to lead the student to, quote, accept the existing government, end quote. So, you know, I know this is a long time ago, but this trend would carry on getting worse and worse for the rest of the 19th century. By the turn of the 20th century, the compulsory education system in America had solidified tradition systematically ripping free thought from children at the earliest of ages. However, no matter how hard they try, the inherent desire to exercise our free will prevails. This strikes fear into them, a fear that they will go to any lengths to quell. Trust me, they will. Oh, go back. Son of a bitch. Um, so... This brings us to the epidisgenics agenda. What is that? The epidisgenics agenda, agenda is designed to breed in willing slaves and eliminate resistant rebels, independent thinkers, and spiritual, spiritually awakened beings. Individuals with a high reverence for resistance to the state, for true freedom, who place the highest value on personal responsibility and natural law are being targeted and deliberately filtered out of society. By influencing the mass majority of females to be attracted to only specific characteristics in men who just happen to be the most fitting to perpetuate the system of human slavery. This tactic is being directly used to weaken and destroy target populations instead of improving them. You know, I know maybe a lot of people have a little bit of trouble hearing that breakdown um, and seeing that it's, you know, that it, the females are being the one influenced, but, you know, females are the, you know, gatekeepers of our species, you know, in consensual voluntary relationships, females get to choose who they want to have children with. So when you weaken the men in the population and you influence females to think that the weak men are the good ones, well, let's take a closer look at that little meme there. The fact that millions of school children require medication on a daily basis so they can 
more easily assimilate into the culture of public schooling does not mean these children are damaged. It means something is very wrong with the whole idea of schooling. Millions, you say? Yes, millions. And this is just at, this is just for ADHD. Okay. The estimated number of children aged 3 through 17 ever diagnosed with ADHD, according to the National Survey of Parents, is 6 million. Using data from 2016 through 2019, this number includes three from 3 to 5 years, that's 265,000. 6 through 11 years, that's 2.4 million. 12 through 17 years, that's 3.3 million. Boys are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than girls. So the amount of boys uh, that were diagnosed is 13% of the boys in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the survey. And 6% of the people in the survey were girls. So that's how these percentages break down, I believe. And then black non-Hispanic children and white non-Hispanic children are more often diagnosed with ADHD, 12% and 10% respectively, than Hispanic children, which is 8%, and Asian non-Hispanic children, which is 3%. Okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, I would like to um, just take a quick look at that, okay? The years there, 2003. 4.4 million, 2007, 5.5, then another four years later, 6.4. Another four, another five years after that, in 2016, we see a decline. Note that decline. The Connor scale, uh, this is how they diagnose children with, uh, with ADHD. When they diagnose children, this is largely used. The Connors Comprehensive Behavior Rating Scale is used to better understand certain social, behavioral, and academic issues in children between 6 and 18 years of age. Like I just stated, it is often used to diagnose attention deficit hyperactive disorder, also known as ADHD. And to read the meme out loud... I'm becoming more convinced that those of us who struggled to listen at school were just instinctively tuning out the program. That's like what I said earlier about the fact that we have free will and it is our desire, it's our purpose here to exercise that free will. And as children, that is what we're doing. We're exploring using our free will. We explore this reality. We explore reality. Okay, so let's take a little bit more careful attention to the Connors scale. The Connors CBRS, as it's more typically known, is suitable in assessing children from 6 to 18 years of age. There are three CBRS forms. One for the parents, one for the teacher, and one for the child. These forms, asks, uh, these forms ask questions that help screen for emotional, behavioral, and academic disorders. 
together, they uh, help create a comprehensive inventory of the child's behavior. The multiple choice questions range from how often does your child have trouble going to sleep at night to how hard is it to focus on homework assignments. These forms are often distributed to schools, pediatric offices, and treatment centers to screen for ADHD. Connors CBRS forms help diagnose children who may have otherwise been overlooked. They also help children understand the severity of their disorders. Scoring for the Connors rating scale is designed to be comprehensive and be able to measure many behavioral markers, including signs of hyperactivity, aggressive behavior, potential for violence, compulsive behaviors, perfectionism, difficulty in class, extra trouble with math, difficulty with language, social issues, emotional distress, and separation anxiety. Separation anxiety. Separation from who? Hmm? Maybe their parents? Maybe this is where, you know, you get anxiety from being separated from your parents? Where, how, why? Oh, maybe because you're in schools where you don't have, uh, where you don't have consent, where you don't have voluntary, con- you know, you, you're not there voluntarily, so you're around a lot of people that you would otherwise not be associated with, perhaps? Maybe that's where the social issues listed there comes in. Maybe that leads to emotional distress. Maybe you shut down and you don't want to speak to anybody, then that's perceived as difficulty with language. Extra trouble with math, why are you trying to squeeze every child into a box? Everybody learns differently at different paces. Not everybody's the same, but they don't care about that. Difficulty in class, hmm, well, (laughs) perfectionism, when you're literally tuned to try to please a stranger, okay, perfectionism perhaps, compulsive behaviors, a lot of little kids have compulsive behaviors, we're here to use our free will to uh, explore reality and to experience it, so that could be misconstrued as compulsive behaviors. Children typically don't have a very good time uh, listening. They, they want to try things their own way and explore. Um, aggressive behaviors, well, I know that when I have my choices taken away from me, sometimes I can, I, can, uh, I can act aggressively and I don't understand the boundaries that I'm pushing. At least I remember that being that way when I was a child. And it's up to a responsible adult or their parents to teach the child about those boundaries that they're pushing and hyperactivity. You know, there's um, more than not kids. Kids are hyperactive just in nature. They just have a lot of energy, you know? So what's, see, this doesn't make any sense to me. Let's move on. Uh, (laughs) We're going to start talking about these medications here. And so stimulants, I am saying that they're a a common enemy. They're all too common. Adderall and the various other stimulants prescribed for ADHD can be found on lists of a drug uh, type known as psychotropic. Let's take a look at what this word means. Merriam-Webster defines psychotropic as acting on the mind. 
the etymology of words, though, gives us a closer look at the historical meaning of words and how they were built. So I would like to continue by taking a closer look and taking a look at the etymological definition of psychotropic. The prefix psycho is a word-forming element meaning mind, mental, spirit, unconscious. From Greek combining uh, from the Greek combining form of psyche, which meant the soul, mind, spirit, life, one's life, uh, the invisible animating principle or entity which occupies and directs the physical body, understanding the mind as the seat of thought, uh, faculty of reason. And then the suffix tropic, from the Greek tropos, a turning, direction, or course, or from trepane, to turn. So, you know, uh, Merriam-Webster has it acting on the mind. If we look at it at the uh, from the etymological root of the word, we could discern for ourselves we could actually define the word diff- a little bit differently. We could re- define the word as uh, to turn the mind, to turn the unconscious, a turning of the unconscious. There's many different, there's many different uh, routes we could take with this word here, but we get the idea. So, for, um. I would actually like to take this opportunity to play a video clip so we can kind of get a little bit of a, a little bit of a glimpse into some of the comedy that has been used in the past and a little bit of the how would you say like maybe a little bit of the uh, revelation of the method. So without any further ado, I've prepared this video clip and uh, you'll all recognize the show that it's from. On the other side, we'll continue with the slideshow. my little boy full of drugs. Yeah, yeah, we get a lot of that. But then they see our results. These are normal guinea pigs, running around like idiots. Now I'll give them some focusums. <gasps> That's amazing! And darling! Check this out. They become your slaves. Yes. But it's not about slavery. It's about helping kids concentrate. This pill reduces class clownism 44%. With 60% less sass mouth. The only thing more effective is regular exercise. (laughs) So yeah, if that doesn't turn your stomach, you know, well, there's still plenty of time in my presentation. But I would like to point out how the first doctor, when they unveil, um, and I know this is a cartoon, made for like young adults adults or whatever but uh they you know anyways when they unveil the the uh the tanks that the guinea pigs are in he refers to the guinea pigs as normal guinea pigs running around like idiots okay so they're perfectly normal now the guinea pigs are the children in this so um then they spray them with drugs and well you just saw the rest so that's exactly what is being done to our children. And so let's continue with 
the slideshow. Um, I would like to bring everybody's attention to the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001. And maybe the older people watching this will be familiar with this, uh, perhaps, I don't know, but this is definitely important information because it reveals a lot about why. The No Child Left Behind Act of 2001, it actually went into effect in 2003. Remember? In 2003, reported 4.4 million, and then the numbers kept going up. This act set requirements to have each school receive federal funding and to administer nationwide standardized testing of their students. This act also incentivized teachers to gain more control over the students in their classrooms because if students tested poorly, those schools could eventually have their entire staff replaced. If the AYP, which is, which is uh, adequate yearly progress, did not meet the mark enough years in a row, that school could even be shut down entirely. This act has been reformed in 2015 to have the standards be left more to the states, but the federal government still gives funding to the schools based on the test results of the standardized testings. So you tell me, you, okay, you're basically threatening these people's jobs. This, is, this, this says teachers are incentivized to get their students to sit down and shut up and take the lesson and perform the tests. And if they don't, if the students don't do that, well, those teachers could lose their jobs. I know teachers don't make a lot of money as it is, but what they don't make in money, they make up for in the control freak mentality that they have. And I'm telling you right now that when you have a group of teachers, when you have a group of people in an institution like the government schools, and they have the ability to take a test and fill out a form that could say that your, that your child has what they're deeming a mental disorder. And they can do that to get them on drugs, to put them in the classrooms, just like in that cartoon. The, why do you think they use the puppet and it looks like a teacher and all the gerbils are sitting at a desk and Homer sits there and goes, they become your slaves. She goes, yeah, but it's not about, yes, but it's not about slavery. Yes, it is about slavery. It's all about slavery. Stimulants a common enemy. Excuse me. Although a wide variety of differing stimulant formulas were con uh, concocted for, the con uh, for combating ADHD, Adderall emerged as the preferred drug among doctors and users. It was created largely by combining amphetamine salts, four, four amphetamine salts to be exact. We're going to look at a, uh, we're going to look at some of the ingredients later. Additionally, the use of the drug quin quintupled, quintupled, that's five times between 1995 and 2008. As a direct result of the surge in legal supplies of the medication, there was a simultaneous rise in its non-medical and recreational use, particularly among high school and college students in highly competitive academic environments. It's surrounding academics yet again. Let's look at this chart. 2002, 2003, Right after 2003, again, the numbers skyrocket. Billions, that's measured in billions, B-I-L-L-I-O-N, billion. By 2012, I know this is not up to date, but this is the best I could find. By 2012, it looks about almost 8.5 to $9 billion 
in U.S. prescription stimulant sales. You still think it's about health? You're kidding yourself if you think it's about health. And here's why. The word Adderall was invented out of a phrase by the, pharma, by the person that ran the pharmaceutical company that adopted the, the drug Obitrol, which was around since the 70s. The FDA never approved it, and then they rebranded it Adderall and so they could approve it. Okay, and then they repurposed it because that's why it didn't get approved, approval under the previous use of the drug. It was supposed to be for diets, and now because, oop, this is all in 1996. ADD for all. It's supposed to be all inclusive. It's supposed to be inclusive. This is out in the open, if you just looked. looking to see some of the things that they might be burying a little bit about Adderall. Adderall is also known, non, <laughs> Adderall is also known to be a dopamine agonist. Yeah, this is a major problem. Dopamine agonists are drugs that mimic the natural neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine agonists bind to and activate the dopamine receptors on nerve cells in your brain, causing the receptors to react as if they were receiving natural dopamine. Long-term use of dopamine agonists can cause side effects such as jerking or writhing movements, uncontrollable and possibly painful muscle movements, hallucinations, delusions, confusion, depression, and mania. Even more serious side effects include heart disease. <laughs> Fibrosis, which is scarring or thickening of tissue, heart failure, and just about anything else these days comes with an increased chance at developing cancer. But don't worry, the current administration, your current government overlords, they're going to end cancer as we know it. So this is Clifford Siegel. He's a neurologist. Uh, he's pretty famous in some circles for saying that we are sort of carpet bombing. The drug doesn't concentrate on the parts of the brain that need medicine. It affects the whole thing. Let's take a little bit closer look at the brain here. It's a chart of the brain, the telencephalon. We got the diencephalon. Which, uh, the thalamus and the hypothalamus. We're actually going to be concentrating a little bit more on the hypothalamus here. But we got, you know, this is just a basic, very basic uh, chart of the brain. Okay. So Adderall increases the activity of several neurotransmitters, such as serotonin. Uh, that's supposed to say norepinephrine, uh, norepinephrine and... Uh, Dopamine. The changes in dopamine activity begin to impact the brain's reward center and alter the ability to experience pleasure without the chemical support of the drug. And they know it. And they're giving it to six-year-olds. At the Well, you know, some of the earliest, they're six years old. This is creating, this is essentially creating a drug addict. 
A small-scale study by the National Institute for Health shows that chronic users of methamphetamine, which shares very similar characteristics to Adderall, Adderall is an amphetamine. Ritalin is methylphenidate. Adderall is just amphetamine. It's four amphetamine salts. But anyways, chronic users of methamphetamine have multiple abnormalities in brain chemistry, function, and structure in the brain region with the highest concentrations of dopamine. Dopamine is a type of monoamine neurotransmitter. It is made in your brain and acts as a chemical messenger, communicating messages between your nerve cells in your brain and your brain with the rest of your body. That's when it's a neurotransmitter. But it's also, it also it acts as a hormone. Dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine uh, are the main catecholamines, which is a label based, in, uh, based on having a part of the same molecular structure. You can see here on the right, you know, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and dopamine. Adrenaline and epinephrine and norepinephrine and noradrenaline, those are interchangeable. Um, from what I can, from what I can uh, find in my research. But these hormones are made by your adrenal glands, which are small hat-shaped glands located on top of each of your kidneys. Dopamine is also a neurohormone released by the hypothalamus in your brain. Okay? So this whole system connects and works with each other. All right? Let's look at this. The hypothalamus is located deep within your brain, it is the main link between your endocrine system and your nervous system. Your hypothalamus keeps your body balanced in a stable state called homeostasis. Symptoms of hypothalamus dysfunction correspond to the type of hormones involved and if that hormone level is too high or too low. Some symptoms of hypothalamus dysfunction are high blood pressure or low blood pressure, water retention or dehydration, weight fluctuations without change of diet, infertility, poor bone health, delayed puberty, muscle loss and weakness, body temperature fluctuations, trouble sleeping, and frequent need to pee. Well, anyone out there that's been on Adderall for more than five minutes can tell you about the frequent need to pee. They can tell you about feeling dehydrated, getting cotton mouth and stuff like that. If you, you know, water retention and frequent need to pee. Well, water, water retention, you could be sweating a lot. Okay, high blood pressure, low blood pressure. You feel faint or you feel like, you know, weight fluctuations. Infertility. Hello? Infertility, really? Um, if they're messing with this... <laughs> And delayed puberty, which makes me think that this might have a connection to uh, a lot of what we're seeing manifest today with children. Uh, well, you know, they're trying to go after kids about this stuff, but you know what I mean? There, uh, there are a lot of people of my generation that grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s that are in their mid, you know, early to mid 30s now who seem to think that they aren't in the right bodies. Could it be that the drugs that they were put on, if, you know, if we really are Generation RX, uh, could it be that the drugs, and not just Adderall, but a lot of other drugs do these types of things, uh, a lot of other psychotropic drugs do these types of things to your brain, to your body, 
but could they be looking down and because of delayed puberty, could there be some sort of, you know, um, <laughs> some sort of mind fuck going on there? You know, I, it's something I ask myself, uh, but yeah, moving on, let's take a look here at the symptoms of ADHD and the corresponding behavior patterns. Let's start with inattention. Okay. Let's look at the behavior patterns of inattention or the inability to pay attention. Often has a hard time paying attention, daydreams. Often does not seem to listen. Is easily distracted from work or play. Often does not care about detail. Makes careless mistakes. Fre frequently does not follow through on instructions or finish, uh, finishes tasks. They're disorganized. Frequently loses a lot of important things. Often forgets things. And frequently avoids doing things that require ongoing mental effort. So this can just basically just be, you know, th this is basically just really, you can look at all of these corresponding behavior patterns of in inattention and you really just, it really just boils down to a lot of outside control, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, of the person experiencing this. They're being held back from exercising their free will and choosing to do things according to the way that they do things often does not seem to listen daydreams has trouble hard time paying attention well maybe you're asking them to pay attention to things that they're not interested in you know i, I know that for myself uh things that i am very highly interested in they do deserve my attention and i do uh follow through on those things um disorganization that's just a point of view my disorganized mess uh, that you might see is actually very organized to me and it's not dirty, it's just a little, you know, uh, a little scattered. Not a big deal. Frequently does not follow through on instructions or finishes tasks. Well, that's just basically just, you know, that's a control structure there. That's outside authority. You don't really have the right to force people into doing that kind of thing. This is all just basic, like, it, it really is. Often does not care about detail, makes careless mistakes. Well, because they don't care about what you're telling them to do. All right? Um... But you get the idea of that one. Let's move on to hyperactivity. Is in constant motion, as if driven by a motor. Cannot stay seated. <laughs> Frequently squirms and fidgets. Talks too much. Often runs, jumps, and climbs when this is not permitted. Constant. Cannot play quietly. Where does it say that you need to play quietly? Play quietly almost sounds like an oxymoron to me. And <laughs> then talks too much. Like how? Like what do you mean? You're trying to control. It's, this is about control. It really is in constant motion because like the, the cannot stay seated because they have energy. Okay. Not everyone is the same. Not everyone operates the same. Why does unique, uh, unique characteristics of a person have to be deemed a, a disorder? Let's look at, let's move on. Impulsivity. Frequently acts or speaks without thinking. Okay. May run into street without looking for traffic first. Eh, that one I can, you know, no one wants that. Frequently has trouble taking turns. Cannot wait for things. 
often calls out answer without the question being complete and frequently interrupts others. Well, freedom, you know, to interrupt other people to have a conversation, I get it. You know, that's just being a part of the conversation. Um, these are all things that, you know, that you learn that can be instilled in a person. The, these impulsive things that they're, that they're uh, listening here. Um, these are all things that, that with, with some effort can be taught to a child if we're even speaking about a child. Um, but let's, you know, just remember that a lot of the people that are, uh, diagnosed with this quote disorder are very young. So, you know, they're still learning. We can't expect them to just, you know, come out and then go into the, go into the world and just, just acquire these skills and just, you know, um, what's the word to just be assimilated into this type of culture. So, you know, frequently interrupting others, they're just pushing boundaries, exploring conversations, exploring interactions with people, you know, can't wait for, cannot wait for things. I mean, hey, when you're excited, do you really want to sit there and wait? Uh, I mean, we're just looking at all of this. And, you know, some of this is like, you know, it, it's just, it's etiquette where uh, if, if this is the type of stuff that you want a person to do, you instill these values into somebody really young, you know, uh, frequently acts or speaks without thinking. I mean, how can you be in their head? How do you know they're not thinking? You know, especially if it's a little kid, they, they're thinking, they're just not thinking, you know, they're, uh, they're just not able to really communicate their thoughts to you. Perhaps may run into the street without looking for traffic first, look after your kids. Okay. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Um, let's move on. That's a big slide. This is where we really start getting into the heart of the matter here. Start asking, you know, what could be causing this behavior? Many children have been left to experience large amounts of abandonment issues caused by their parents falling prey to the current social order in which they have grown accustomed to. Stay tuned. Don't turn this off if this is offending you as a parent. A child lacks the life experience to communicate their true needs to the parents. In the absence of the parent fulfilling the needs of the child, these behaviors are likely to manifest. Let's take a look at what these types of abandonment look like. Well, let's start. Physical abandonment does not only mean the idea of leaving a child behind, never to see them again. In the modern day, People have a lot of trouble coping with the fact that sending a child to public schools is a form of abandonment, physical abandonment. They are your children. They are your responsibility. With physical abandonment comes the other forms of abandonment by default. Next, let's take a little look at uh, emotional abandonment. Emotional abandonment involves not only the absence of emotional availability on the part of the parent, but also the lack of educating the child on how to manage their emotions through various breathing techniques and using their voice to describe how they are feeling. This takes place on a personal level. So emotional availability on the part of the parent, like this is where you lead by example, okay? For better or worse, you lead by example. And I would also like to encourage people to, you know, take the liberty of replacing the word parent here with maybe even guardian, because 
all is fair in the modern day. All right. We're not all with our biological parents. And uh, I have a lot of respect for those that take on the immense responsibility of uh, raising a child that you did not bring into this world. There's a lot of love in that situation. So my hat's off to you if that is you. My hat's off to the biological parents uh, out there as well, taking responsibility for their kids. So anyways, moving on. um, Well, not moving on. So the emotional availability. So lead by example. Okay. This is, and then coach your child that, you know, you get to know your child. You get to, you get to recognize their patterns. You get to know them on a personal level. They're just little people. Okay. They're little people with very little experience in reality, very little experience with their bodies and with their minds. So it's up to us to raise them, to lift them up, to be the wind under their wings and to, to coach them into um, being conscious and into being a, a, a good person. And part of that coaching is to get to know them as they are and who they are and to recognize their emotions. This is where our experience as older people comes into play and you ask questions you see them clenching their fists or crying whatever and you talk to them it's a parenting class folks i'm just kidding (laughs) so the next form of abandonment is spiritual abandonment and this comes from the lack of connection to the to nature that is being thrust upon many children in the world today Again, this is largely due to the involvement of public schools and the idea that in order to be spiritual, you must be religious in the traditional sense of the word. So we know that uh, they, they don't bring religion into schools. They don't, do, they don't do that type of stuff. And, you know, part of spirituality, uh, there's, there's a large connection between spirituality and religion. So they don't really do these types of teachings in schools. Um, So parents are to blame for this as well, because in many cases, parents have grown into an atheistic worldview poisoning in which they think there couldn't possibly be a force at play in nature, the likes of which they have no control over. They fail to teach their children that we are beings with a spirit that we are each unique expressions of consciousness experiencing reality. You might have a lot of trouble hearing that. And, um, you know, if you stick around today, you might get more insight on spirituality. But yeah, uh, so we're going to move on from, from that now. And I would just like to, you know, talk to people about their diets. You know, and and I don't have enough time to really get into as much of the dietary stuff as I would like to. And in fact, like, to be completely honest, I'm not even the person that could tell you the most and to be as as accurate about this as as I would like to be. Um, But I would like to just shed some light on a couple of things here. In 2011, 
the FDA said that synthetic food dyes are not harmful in our foods. However, research has shown that they can cause ADHD-like symptoms and that some children are particularly sensitive to them. According to a 2021 report from the state of California, research does indicate that children who consume synthetic food dyes, including Red 40, can experience hyperactivity and other neurobehavioral issues. Red 40 is found in nearly all categories of food. In nature, red is a very appealing food color. Many fruits are colored red to indicate when they are ripe. We instinct, instinctually respond to this, to those visual cues in our food. And the food industry knows this, they recognize it, and they're exploiting it. The ingredients label located on all of your packaged foods, foods may list Red 40 as one of its other names. These include Allura Red AC, Red 40 Lake, FDNC Red Number 40 Aluminum Lake, FDNC Red Number 40, E129, CI Food Red 17, INS Number 129. And just, you know... Be on the lookout because the majority of pediatricians recommend medicines containing red 40. Um, we have, uh, you know, not we, but we, we can look at things like children's Tylenol, children's cough syrup, pediatric Tylenol, the stuff that they give to babies, you know, when they're supposedly like colic or whatever. Not Maybe not colic, but when babies start to teeth, things like this. So, um. This is what they recommend. <laughs> and these have red 40 in them. They have food dyes in them. Okay. We have a lot of, a lot of foods that you wouldn't think have, but they have red 40 in them. They have food dyes in them. You know, like a lot of surprise, surprise, a lot of things like, uh, you know, the, a lot of things, uh, like, like chocolate, um, a lot of things that are made to look like chocolate and advertised as chocolate flavored. You know, you be on the lookout for, they use words very cunningly. Um, so just look at your, look, look at your ingredients and it will disturb you. As you're walking down the grocery aisle, you look at your ingredients and it becomes very apparent that they're, they're poisoning us. This is very disturbing. This is a clip that I took from the insert package of Adderall. Silicone dioxide, sucrose. Sucrose is a type of sugar. Maltodextrin, starch, cornstarch. Magnesium styrate, stearate. Cellulose, microcrystalline. Saccharin, sodium, FDNC blue number one aluminum lake. Um, didn't we just talk about how food dyes are causing the symptoms and they're putting the food dyes that can cause the symptoms in the medication for the thing that they're calling a disorder and they're giving this medication to the kids and the medication has the f fucking food dye in it. The same food dye that could be causing the symptoms. It's a fuck. It, it's, a, it's a revolving door of bullshit. 
I'm sorry for using this language, but this is the type of language in Parhesia that needs to be used to get through to you people out there that are hearing this, that might need to hear it and get some tough love. And if you're sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself that, oh, a little bit of whatever. No, these things compound and they stack up on top of each other when you're eating it. And it's in almost everything that you eat, all the things that you're giving your kids, the cereals, the candies, the pudding, the, the popsicles, everything. And I woke up my baby daughter. <laughs> but luckily we have some solutions. The ongoing assault on our children's mental health needs to be put to an end. In order to do so, we'll take great sacrifice on the part of the parents. This is necessary. These are your children. Do not drug them, no matter what. The doctors will try to influence you. The teachers will try to influence you. Your own parents may even try to influence you. Your family, your friends, even your spouse. Do not listen. Don't do it. These are, there are always more natural approaches one can take to help their child cope with behavioral issues, many of which require little to no professional intervention. The further you go down the rabbit hole of behavioral issues, the easier it is to see that not only do the drugs exacerbate the problems, but the real solution involves no drugs at all, but rather a realization on just how important it is to be there for your children, to listen to them, to pay attention. If your child is on psychotropic drugs right now, I would suggest that you call your doctor ASAP and move to getting them off the drugs. The same goes for those who are in government schools. Get, up, get them out. Get them out of there. Okay, and if you go to your doctors, just try to, you know, wean them. Wean, wean your child off the drugs. Small steps in the direction of being a drug-free child. Also get them out of public schools. So many children who are on these drugs would have never been put on them if not for the corrupt control freaks that make up the population of public school teachers. This action will take great sacrifice, but what is worth the life of your child? Many child suicide cases are the result of that child being on psychotropic drugs. Many cases of children being prescribed such medications is a result of them being in public schools. You think I'm wrong? Look for yourself. Prove me wrong. Think about it. Government schools are an extremely unnatural setting for children to, quote, learn in. Homeschool your kids. In the modern age of tech and info, the ability to homeschool your kids is getting easier and easier. Look online for a pod group for pod learning or a co-op near you or just set one up for yourself. If you can't take time off of work, again, what is the life of your child worth? Remember one thing. The public school is only there to make willing slaves out of your children, and that is a fact. The prescription of psychotropic drugs to children is a clear violation of their natural law of rights. They cannot consent to these drugs. 
They cannot understand the long-term side effects of these drugs. No matter how hard you try to explain, you have no right to do this to your children. Stop it. Thank you very much. My name is James Cordiner. You can find more from me at A Hitchhiker's Guide to Truth. Come check out my website, Free Your Mind New England. It's freeyourmindne.com. And this has been my presentation, ADHD, A Modern Attack on Free Thinkers. Thank you very much to the rest of the speakers at the conference. And I hope you guys all stick around. Agape.